Hi, I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And I think this week, instead of, hey, I want your job, it's like, hey, tell me everything about your job because it's so cool. <laughs> Ann Schaefer, what is your job title? I am a fine art curator. Yeah, you are. Okay. So you do understand that to most of us, we hear those words and we immediately picture like every art caper ever, right? <laughs> Where like, you are like the se sexy, like art buyer curator for the multi gajillionaire and like you, like Pierce Brosnan gets involved and you're seduced and then the art is stolen, but then haha, -ha, you know, it's all they like, so that is immediately what everybody thinks when you say that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the reality of it. The media. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the one that I always think back to is Black Panther, where the curator wanders into the gallery with a cup of coffee. <laughs> you can't bring coffee into a gallery. <laughs> <laughs> for all the reasons. Uh, for all the reasons, yes. You you fill in the blanks. Um, yeah. So I had a long career in museums. I'm a curator of prints, drawings, and photographs. Anything that's on paper, basically. And I have had a career in um, contemporary prints for the last about 15 years. So before that, I was really studying things that went back in history. So American early 20th century or British 17th century or um, 18th century. So I've kind of jumped all over the place, but I finally have settled into the contemporary print world, which is where I am now. And very happily so, because the print people are the nicest people in the art world. Okay, so I have all the questions. I know. <laughs> so I have previously had on the show one of my personal favorite local um, print artists. And um, he does all kinds of really cool stuff. But he, it's things that he does on the computer and then he prints out a, a limited set, etc. Which is one flavor of print artists. I saw the big breath. So... He is, so when I hear print artists, that's the kind of thing my head goes to. Talk to me a little bit more about how that is one of your flavors, but also what other flavors are. And then also, if you have thoughts on that, like emerging that art, flavor, <laughs> that flavor, I would love to hear them. All yeah. Right. You know, Michelle, the, the, it's, it's so interesting because it's really a problem of nomenclature that we call something you get out of your home printer, a print of a thing, and I'm talking about prints too. So, and a photograph is a print, right? There's a whole lot of uh, overlap. I'm talking about fine art prints, which means that you have a matrix of some sort, a piece of wood, uh, a copper plate or something that you are inking in some way, and you're going to impress it onto a piece of paper, maybe a, maybe a piece of fabric. And you're getting a transfer from the matrix to the substrate, a piece of paper usually. Usually, in contemporary terms anyway, they are generated in editions, limited editions, uh, maybe 10, maybe 50. They are numbered so that everyone knows how many there are and how many, you know, which one you might have bought. Um, 
they are, they can be um, etchings, engravings, lithographs, green prints, uh, woodcuts, linoleum cuts. So there's, there's a lot of variations within fine art prints. There are fine art prints that incorporate digital things, but for the most part, it's not only digital, which is what your first flavor was, I think, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so it's, uh, I think there's, not that there's not a lot of work that goes into the digital image making, it's, it is kind of its own thing, but I think the, the people in my column, my flavor, are adhering to the handedness of creating something outside of a computer. So that's really like, I, that makes sense. I Good. feel like, um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts that I have a lot of snobbery around people who make cool, beautiful, etc. things on a computer and then print a, a limited number of prints or what have you. And I have a tendency to, in my own head, minimize that as art. And I think of art as involving a paintbrush or a uh -huh. so the kind of thing that you're talking about where they have done the handwork involved. Michael Parks is one of my favorite artists of all times. And obviously he works with stone lithograph and I can tell from your smile, you know exactly who he is. Um, <laughs> and so, but that is definitely in your printmaking, like traditional, sense of the term is it just me that has the snobbery about the ah. more modern um digital prints or is that in the the fine art world and are there exceptions and if so ah. how does one become an exception oh gosh there, it's a it's a spectrum there's oh, um there's completely unique things which would be your painting or your you know clay sculpture that you've managed mm -hmm. manned handmade handmade. Um, and prints are troublesome for people because there's more than one. So it's, it is confusing for people, but then there's like the poster where it's an offset lithograph and there's 5,000 of them. So there's this whole stretch. And then there's the digital thing. You could hit print tomorrow and you could hit print in a hundred years and get the same thing. So there's, um, there's a artificial hierarchy of importance. You know, painting is always at the top. Guess who made that decision? The painters. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the people in back in history, the people who had money, the church, the dukes, the noblemen or whatever, they were the ones who said, hey, I want a painting of, you know, the Madonna and the child. And I want to have my parents in the corner. And, you know, I want my wheat field over there in the other corner because I'm a person who made my money doing that. So when prints start becoming a thing, which is, uh, 1455-ish when movable type becomes a thing and they start printing the Bible and the Nuremberg like Chronicle and, right, yeah. right. You get, you start getting the ability of artists to put forward an image of something that nobody ordered, right? Mm -hmm. So they have to make something that more than one person will want. And it becomes a thing that, um, helps, well, it helps in a lot of ways, but it's, it's really the early internet. It's the way images got out. I mean, before that, if, unless you were in a church, you might see a sign that was painted above the farrier shop, but you know, you just, you didn't see the ubiquity of images like we see today. So I don't even know where I'm going with this, but the, <laughs> the, point, the point is that, that prints are our shared visual culture. That's how I usually put it. And they 
had a real didactic purpose early on, and they can still have a very didactic, you know, political satire or what have you. Um, but that artists have also used it to uh, use them to say things about their own work. And that often my point to most people is usually that the many painters use printmaking and they move back and forth between the two fluidly and that one informs the other and that they're not, that prints shouldn't be the redheaded bastard stepchild, which is what they are usually. Right. So I, I'm, a, I'm like a, I'm a print evangelist. I'm yelling in the wind. <laughs> and are you a print evangelist for the, the types that you specialize in only or for all prints? Like if it's on paper and beautiful, we should love it and call it art or... Yeah, that's hard too. You know, the, um, yeah, it's hard. Cra you know, the craft is a dirty word. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of false hierarchies going on in the art world. I appreciate anybody who can put their creativity into something solid, whether it's paper or otherwise crocheting or, you know, macrame, whatever it is. There is a, um, some people might draw the line between craft as something that is use, used and useful, mm -hmm. um, but that kind of mucks up the whole decorative arts departments in most museums, <laughs> so there you have that. But uh, my, a very sage, wise artist friend of mine says that the difference between craft and art is um, ego. I think that's probably apt <laughs> yeah. to a certain extent, right? Like, yeah, I think that's yeah. absolutely. I think, um, and we move the needle over time, right? So things yes. that were hundreds of years ago when they were created would have definitely been considered craft. Now we're like, oh, it is art of that age because yes. we don't have anything else. So we're going to go and call that <laughs> art. So um, absolutely. So we we ascribe ego to things that maybe did not begin life that way, um, which I, I think is fascinating. I also think, and I'd love to hear what your take on this is, that right now the art world is in this really interesting place that for the first <laughs> time in a long time Robert, I, mean, I think art has always been interesting right but for a lot of time art was really art right there weren't a whole new genres as much as we have now so you had okay it people got funny about pop art and jackson pollock or you know every time there's been a new movement in painting or print or anything else there's been people who had strong opinions and wanted to dismiss it but now, for the first time, we have whole new mediums of art potential creation, right? So when we look at like NFTs and what that means in terms of art, when we look at things like, you know, the, the more pop arty um, digital prints that then get printed out, like all of those things together, like that's kind of a really, I would think, exciting time if you're a big art nerd to be in the art nerding business. Talk to me about where those conversations are. How do you feel about that? Am I totally wrong? And it's always no, been no. the same. I'm just ignorant. That happens too sometimes, Anne. I, I, um, I think because I'm of a certain age and I was brought up in a, in, uh, a sort of a museum place that is trying to dissolve itself now that I'm, I'm kind of a traditionalist. Um, which is not to say that all of those other things aren't art, but for me, the hand, the hand is really important to me. I mean, if, when you're an art, some people, when they're an artist, <laughs> not everybody, there's, there's a sort of circular thing that happens. There's an idea comes into your brain. 
and I feel like it, the best art gets squished through your heart, passion, and out through your hand, the tool. And all of it is, you know, whatever person you believe is giving you your talent or thing or entity, whatever, that there is some gift there and I want to see it. And I want to know that you have made that thing. So I, I kind of a traditional set in that way. I, I kind of think NFTs are, I'm going to throw the first bomb. Bullshit. <laughs> okay. All right. So now I, I got to, I need some clarification okay. because you specifically think that photography is art. And so photography is, it goes from your brain, out your heart, through your finger, into a mechanical device where you push a button and then an image is created. How is that substantively different than going through my heart, through my body, into this mechanical device where I click a button and an image is created? Yeah, no, you're you're right. F uh, photo had a long, hard road getting to be considered art. I mean, um, in most museum collections, photography doesn't become considered an object of the collection until the 70s or even 80s. That the Baltimore Museum, where I was last a curator, the ma the major gift that started that part of the collection didn't come in until 1988. So it's uh, it yes, there's. Yeah, and the photo people will probably draw a line between vernacular photo, your family photo albums, and documentary photography and artistic photography. So yeah, no, there's 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 stuff to unpack there for sure. <laughs> yeah, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's it's tough. It's hard. You know, with digital photography, especially right, like it, it, there's the whole argument. It, and you get the same thing with music right now, that music we hear about, like the whole auto-tune thing. Like, well, it's not really them singing. It's totally them singing. It's just been artfully augmented using technology, whether, you know, if you enjoy the song, you enjoy the song, right? But there's a, there's a healthy debate to be had about where the talent lies with that and, and what makes it art or not art. And I think the same is kind of true, especially with things like digital photography, where Again, it's very, so we have beautiful prints in our home that we love that are, um, there's an artist local that does digital photography that he then augments in different ways. So he like takes the photo and then he'll like enhance colors or move something around and it's stunning and beautiful and we love it. And Jamie Rude is amazing. And we have two of his prints, um, one of which is ridiculously huge. It's like 12 feet I think it's 12 by seven feet. Wow. Yeah. Because we're big fans, Anne. Big fans. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I, I think that people from a certain mentality would look at that and be like, how is that art? Like he just took a picture on a camera that self-corrects with the right settings. And then he blew up some of the pictures, but ultimately he didn't paint anything. He didn't, is there craft in that? Like, yeah, yes, there where's, is craft, yes. Where's the line for you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, it's a, a spectrum, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, just the art of framing the image can be considered the artistic moment, the decisive moment, right? Yep. Um, any manipulation to it, sure. Like, you know, even the framing of it 
can change it from, you know, the Xerox on your desk to a print on your wall. Yeah, I, it's, um, yes, I think it needs, it, it is an open book, really, the whole art thing. What is art and what constitutes art? I just happen to be sitting in a place. I know, I just think it's so digital. interesting. But at the same time, curators are a big part of that dialogue, right? Like you yes. guys are a big part of the who gets to be art and who gets to be a hobbyist. Yes, there is a very sad and difficult, uh, yeah, they, the curators are the tastemakers for a large part of it, although the gallerists are too, and you know, it's who you know, and it's the whole market part of it is crap. It's just, I hate it. I just hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I'm a, like, I'm a real nonprofit person. Art is the evidence of humanity's creativity it's the best part of being human right like that you know the dog isn't thinking creatively humans are the only people who can think or beings that can think creatively and to tie that to some kind of metric of who you know which school did you go to could you afford to go to that school who happened to see you in that critique that day did they pick you up and say hey leo castell or whoever the gallerist is you know i got a person for you you know and going into the art schools and trying to find people younger and younger before they even know who they are. Like the whole thing is just, it's, it's really, um, it's fraught, <laughs> I would say, which makes, you know, being a curator of some historical period, much more, um, uh, it could be a good place to hide. <laughs> <laughs> well, Freakonomics did a whole series on like the economics of art, um, a few months ago. I don't know. Oh, I, I missed. Oh, I got to do that. Oh. It is very yeah. fascinating. Um, Stephen Dubner referring to the CD underbelly of the art market is hilarious. Um, but it was it was fascinating, as most things for economics does um, are. And it talked a lot about, you know, the kind of the rigged game that is the art world that um, you know, they talked about how they talked to gallerists who talked about they won't, they're legally required to have a price list, but they don't have to show you and they don't have to sell to you. And so they have a price list that they hide under like back of a drawer somewhere. And then um, if, and they were talking about how you can walk in off the street and say, oh, I love that painting. And they say, great, that's $20,000. And you say, great, let me write you a check. And they can say, absolutely not. Because I don't like this is, I want their art to be somewhere fancy or what have you. And they can just choose not to sell to you because you don't have the pedigree that they feel necessary to own art. And I, the just, blatant institutional reinforcement of all of the negative everything in that is was pretty eye-watering to me talk to me about your experience with that with the tastemakers with that like you know keeping art sacred real fine art sacred for the elite and 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 what you think about that as a nonprofit lover as an art is for the people person like if I gave you a magic crayon and let you fix it, what would you do, Anne? Oh, God. That's a great question, Michelle. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Yeah, it's a seedy underbelly for sure. And the haves and the have-nots are, are a thing. Um, and in when you're in the museum field and you are uh, a curator, I don't know if you know any 
curators and have any of them ever told you how much they make. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. They, they're the most overeducated and underpaid people on the planet, quite literally. And they are, part of their job is to hobnob and make all of the rich trustee types and collectors in town love them and love the collection and, you know, help them buy things and support the museum. And you, you're, and then you're also working with young artists who, you know, don't have a pot to piss in either. So, you know, there's a really strange um, dynamic that goes on there. Um, the, I didn't mean to go into Prince, but the great thing about Prince is there's more than one of them and you, Michelle, can have one and I can have one and so can the museum. And that was, you know, that's the, the, the calling card for Prince. They're, it's a democratic, you know, medium. There's 50 of them. The Met can have one, Baltimore can have one, you know, somebody in Paris can have one. And we all speak the same language because we're all talking about the same objects, the same, you know, image on a piece of paper. Like I know that St. Louis has a, a certain state of a Rembrandt print. And I know that Baltimore has one that's, you know, a little different because it's printed on a different kind of paper and the inking is less. And, you know, we all know, all the print curators know each other and we all call on each other frequently to sort of say, hey, do you have this thing? I'm, you know, doing a show, I need a whatever. So <clears throat> the, um, not that print, you know, the print people are superior, but. <laughs> <laughs> but they we might do. be superior. <laughs> well, we, we sort of uh, have a slightly better balance between this, you know, the hierarchy bit, you know, where we are more egalitarian. Well, I think that more egalitarian is, is probably pretty easy to do um, than the people who are <laughs> in the business of making something seem exclusive, right? That's where a lot of art gets its value is being seen as, you know, a la mode and or highly exclusive, right? So everybody has to suddenly love this thing and that's now what's on trend. And so we pay millions of dollars for it. And last year we would have called it junk. Um, and so, <laughs> well, and there, and there's the gatekeepers are all busy trying to talk about those kinds of objects in the most obscure and inane ways possible, thereby keeping out people who don't speak international art speak, which drives me Batty, batty. Like I want to help you understand. That's my job. I, as my friend Miranda said, I love this and I want you to love it too. And I think I can get you there. So we've talked about how print has so many iterations and so many flavors. You have to have a favorite. Oh, what is oh. it that makes you really, when you're like, oh, it's a... Yeah. Oh God, that's hard. I'll preface my choice, which I'm not sure I have in my brain yet by saying <clears throat> that when you are in a print drawing and photograph department in a museum, you're covering from 1455 to tomorrow. So you become a real generalist. Hashtag no pressure. No pressure Right, exactly. So you come, become a real generalist. So um, you have to be able to tell, talk about anything at any time. You know, you have visitors come in. Every print department has a study room for people like you to come in and say, hey, I want to look at that Rembrandt. And it was my job to help you do that. <clears throat> so I was often dropping a lecture. <laughs> oh, sure, I'll talk to you about Rembrandt. Why not? You know, and uh, so uh, you have lots of favorites, you know, and usually what we all will say is it's the last one I was researching or the last one I purchased for a collection or, you know, that kind of thing. So. Rather than picking a single piece, 
is there a single genre that yeah. is like your so i you know i live for a good copper plate i um my heart breaks for you know stone lithographs like what what is it that is like if you had to pick just one thing that that was where you were going to hang your hat which one would you oh pick? easy easy <clears throat> that is easy <clears throat> excuse me um it, yeah intaglio prints etching engraving anything on copper anything on copper okay. yeah because I mean, I like a good woodcut. You can really, you know, get the sort of uh, passion, the anger, whatever, like the German expressionists did in a woodcut, which is great. Um, stone lithographs are beautiful, but they leave me cold. There's no body to them. They're just flat, 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 flat. And screen prints I'm coming around to, but they also are pretty flat. Um, but intaglio, which me is Italian for in size, twin size which covers, you know, etching to engraving and everything in between, aquatint, spit, you know, all that stuff. Um, what you can, don't do it, but you can run your finger across the lines on one of those prints and they're standing up tall like this. You can feel the texture. And if you flip the paper over, you can see the embossment from the pressure going through the press. And there's just something so sculptural and tactile about them. And I just love them. I just love them. So tell me a little, I think I don't know as much as I thought I did about how, how they work. Like, how does the, how does the, the copper plating work? Like what, ah. like physically, what is, what is done? What happens? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, you can do a lot with metal, which is a good thing. You, you generally have a rectangle, although you can make it a shaped plate if you would like. Um, you can scribe directly into it with various tools uh, and engraving takes a, a, a tool called a burin that sort of has a handle that rests in your palm and has a, a point down here and you're pushing into the copper to create a very sharp and um, precise V-shaped groove so that the ink is very, when the lines come out under the pressure and printed on the plate, they're very crisp and cool and they're just gorgeous. You can also take a dry point needle, which is a very sharp, you know, it's like a needle really, and you can draw with it and that is pulling it towards you and it kicks up a different kind of uh, line. Um, so that looks differently, also beautiful. And then when you get to the umbrella that is etching, it's it starts to involve the chemicals, the acid. So you usually take a copper plate and you coat it with a ground which is like a sort of tarry substance. And it can be a hard ground, which you can scratch through like a scratch board, or it can be a sort of a soft ground, which is sticky and you can impress um, material into it and nets and get all these textures and stuff. And once you've scratched some drawing into it or created a pattern with the fabric, you then put it into an acid bath and the chemicals eat away at the lines you've drawn instead of you having to push the beer in through the metal. So it does the work for you. It's easier, not necessarily faster, although it's probably faster, um, but the line quality is different. It, they look different. So everyone, you know, the first question usually is what's the difference between etching and engraving? And the difference is chemicals, but also the, the look of the line and the quality and the shape of how the ink sits in there, it changes. You know, if you have a V gouge trough versus a U-shaped trough, the ink sits differently. It's just a, like the whole different look. I mean, it takes a lot of looking to get really facile at telling the difference, but, and then 
also in this whole chemical acid bath world, you can, um, you can create other patterns. Like an aqua tint is where you, today you would use a spray paint and, and get spray droplets all over the plate. So then that droplet of paint is the resist and the acid will eat around each droplet. And then when you ink it up, it gives you almost continuous tone. It's like a very irregular half dot. Uh, half dot tone. So, and then you can scrape back and you can do other things. And that's, um, I don't know if you've ever looked at the etchings of Goya, but that he used a lot of aqua tint to get the various tones of gray. And I, I mean, give me an aqua tint any day. They're the most gorgeous things ever. And then there's lots of other variations in between and other ways to get the acid to do the stuff. And, you know, there's, it's, um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> that's amazing to me. And again, my, my natural like prejudices go into saying that like the more valuable art is the copper plate itself that has been etched rather than the things that have come off it. Obviously your line of work would say differently valuable. <laughs> I, I love a plate. I, I was an advocate for collecting plates into the collection. There are many institutions that don't collect plates at all because they don't think of them as objects, but oh. I have met many artists who say the plates are the most beautiful things I make and they consider that to be the art. That's so interesting. Why do they consider the plate not to be the art? Is it because it's just there to transfer the image. It's like, it would be like saving a paintbrush. Is that like the thinking? I think, I mean, it never made any sense to me. So I'm not sure I could explain it, honestly. I mean, it was just kind of moronic in, in a way, because that's that's the thing that the artist had his hand on, her, her hand on, right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. You know, it would also be the means of creating additional images that were beautiful yeah. if you wanted to. So if you found and copper erodes I would imagine it's very rare and difficult to find copper that has any real age to it but um I if you did like you would be able to create you know more images of something that was historical and but no wow that I, that is blown my mind because in preparing to talk to you right I went and looked at like all this different art stuff and I was thinking to myself I have a lot of friends that are artists because I live in Austin and everybody but me is an artist, apparently. Either like a musician or some other form of art, right? I have zero artistic talent. I have only appreciation for other people who have it. Um, and I saw like some etchings, that sort of thing. And I was thinking, you know, it would be really gorgeous would be to have like a framed presentation with like the actual plate in the middle and then like some renderings around it because I've seen like they can take the single plate and depending on how they ink it, et cetera, they have very different effects. Like that would be so insanely beautiful to have like on one wall. I can't be the only one that's had that idea. Like there are no <laughs> new ideas, right? Like, <laughs> so yeah, crazy. we, I did a show in 2016 for one of the small uh, historic house museums that is under the Johns Hopkins university Umbrella, my dog is getting up off the bed. She's got a really bad lung cough thing going on. I'm so sorry. Um, and it was a it was an exhibition of an artist named Peter Milton, who is uh, known at, far and wide as one of the best etchers of the late 20th century. 
and he's 87, I think now, um, but they're, they're large scale, gorgeous, gorgeous etchings. And so we did a show of the plates, of the copper plates. And then for some of them, we had the prints also, but mostly it was the copper plates, just to make this point, like it's, they're, you know, they're the most amazing things. And wow, so sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I have two dogs and two children and you have no noise in your house, but it's not been a thousand times in mine. You're fine. You're absolutely yeah, fine. She's a, uh, she's actually, we discovered yesterday, she's got a pretty big mass in her lungs. So she's sort of, um, yeah, oh, this so is her, her final, let's spoil her weekend, I'm afraid. So anyway. It's a hard place to be. It is, it is, but she's a sweetie, but there you are. Um, anyway, so yeah, the copper, and copper plates are really interesting. In history, they're, the idea of a limited edition only came into being in the late 19th century with people like Whistler. It was a very artificial way to create a market. Like this is rare. There's only 15 or whatever number they yeah. decided. Before that, <clears throat> plates were printed after an artist's death for a long time. You, they're still printing off of Piranesi plates at the Calcogrifia in Rome. Like you can go in there and order a print off of one of the plates that they have. And people like uh, like Rembrandt's plates were printed over and over. And you know the with each pass through the press, the, and the pressure is really intense and the, the line work does wear down. So subsequent artists will go in and heighten, re-heighten the design and they'll just keep printing them. So there, there's some really great examples in Rembrandt of, you know, um, lifetime impressions and then just after lifetime impressions and then the subsequent, you know, ones up and through the 18th century that are just awful. But they were that popular and the idea of limiting the addition just didn't, it wasn't a thing. So we don't know how many there are of any of those compositions. There could be you know, millions of them out there though. Well, I mean, there's like probably, you know, a couple hundred. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a couple hundred, but, um, you know, and you don't know if, if any have been destroyed over time. Like you, there's just no way to know. It's fascinating. So for you as a curator, yeah. Um, when you're looking at some forms of art lend themselves to being obviously art, right? So like modern artists who do copper etchings and they do beautiful things, like it's very, it's hand done and very intensive labor from that perspective. They're not normally drawing like stick figures and that sort of thing, which is what I would do if somebody made me. <laughs> attack a piece of copper with a tool like it would not be good like it'd be clearly not art um but there, so there's some things that are clearly in that category there are other things that people have to gain a lot of skill at to be able to differentiate themselves as an artist rather than a hobbyist etc what for you makes that line with something like what do you look for to say okay yes that is definitely art versus it's good to have hobbies yay hobbies i you know i i think there's an intention piece in it like 
you know, even if it is a stick figure, if it's, if it's, you know, saying stick figure, you got this. Well, I mean, you know, art is a wide open thing. And that's the fascinating thing about doing a a podcast about art and about prints and printmaking, because there are amateurs and there are people who have made it and their work is at the Met and there's everything in between. And, you know, there's nothing saying that that person isn't, you know, as good an artist as that person. It's just the back to that rigged game. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I think if you, I mean, I may not want to buy your stick figure. <laughs> so I guess for me, I get very frustrated that my, I find that my very wonderful and lovely artist friends, we will sit around and have too many wines and inevitably I will say, Oh, I wish I had your skill. I would love to be an artist. When I try to draw things, it does not go well. And they're like, whatever you create is art all creation is art. And I am like horse wallop. That is just not true. Like, no, when I like doodle on a piece of paper, even with all the intention of trying to make something beautiful, it is not. And I think that I argue that having the skill to be able to create with intention that which you envisioned, which I do not, right? I can picture beautiful things in my head. I can give myself a piece of charcoal and a piece of paper. What is in my head does not come out on the paper. That the skill is being able to translate what is in your head to being what is there. And if that is blocks of color, great. That it is really about being able to, to do that translation. That is my very uneducated, rudimentary distinction between them. How? I don't, yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I, um, I have, I have a friend who works at the art school in Baltimore, the Maryland Institute College of Art. And, um, there has been a push in recent years to not make anybody who comes in as an, um, he calls them the pointy clicky people, the illustrators, you know, the people who are going into product design or whatever, that they don't any longer have to take drawing. And there, for some of us, there's a deep belief that that's this whole idea of skill, you know, that there, there's a fundamental skill that needs to be achieved and through practice, one can get there if one works hard enough, right? I mean, you may not be Leonardo, but you could probably render, you know, the sneaker that's under your desk, right? <laughs> but there's, there is definitely- a lot of faith in me, and I am not sure that, <laughs> I, that faith is well-placed. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, t- it's tough. I mean, I f- sometimes I feel like a real bump on a log traditionalist or something, but I, you know, I believe that I believe several things. One, um, if you're an artist that you need to know who comes before you. So you do need to have a sense of, you know, like if you walk into a studio visit and you see somebody and you say, Oh, this reminds me of the work of Jasper Johns. And they're like, who? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. You didn't make that up. Like, so I, I always advocate for that. And I, um, and I do think that there is some onus on the artists who have developed some kind of skills. Like they don't have to like it and they don't have to do it forever, but that there, there is a, a tunnel they have to come through um, to, to at least appreciate what it takes to do all that stuff. I mean, a lot of people don't like representational stuff. They think it's traditional. You know, if it's a, if it's a picture of a puppy in a sailboat, yeah, but if it's, you know, is it rendered well? Like, I don't know. It's so, oh my God, I know, you got to be running in circles. 
my husband and I have this on, we have very diametrically opposed taste in art. And as you can probably gather from what I've already told you about my taste in art, I like hyper-realism is like my jam. If it's going to be a picture of a puppy in a boat, it better fucking look like a puppy <laughs> in a boat, right? Like I don't need three green, square, blue squares that are the water and four brown squares are the puppy and I was supposed to put that together. No bullshit. I want a puppy and a boat. My husband, on the other hand, is a big believer in like, you know, look at this like blurry squares on a canvas. Or don't they give meaning to your emotions? And I'm like, no, they look like fuzzy squares on the canvas and that somebody should paint something. If <laughs> it looks like a background for the painting that didn't happen. That's what that looks like to me. Right. So he loves so he's English. We lived in the UK for 10 and a half years. And like, we always used to joke that like when we went to the museums, which we did a lot, um, if we were going for him, we went to the Tate Modern. Ah. If we were going for me, we went to Tate. To British, no, to the British Museum. In oh, okay. But <laughs> even older. But oh, the National not, Gallery. Then, yeah. yeah. But if not, then to, to the Tate. Right. Like, yeah. so like, but very like, Again, and so I am I am definitely in your stuffy camp here. I'm probably <laughs> even stuffier than you, Anne, in terms of my preferences about the whole thing. Well, and yeah, the, the puppy sailboat thing, yes. I think the ability to render is important. But there, for a curator like me who was collecting work for a collection through which you needed to be able to put it on the wall and be able to say that it's more substantive than a puppy in a sailboat, that I wouldn't go after a puppy in a sailboat, that I would want the artist to be saying something more than I'm sitting in my easy chair on a Sunday afternoon painting a puppy in a sailboat. So my bar is, you know, it's pretty high for art to have content and be saying something. I mean, it could be saying something about you and your internal personal whatever, and it could be saying something about Trump. Like it, but it has to say something more than a puppy in a sailboat. <laughs> So I want to then kind of segue into the, your actual job and what you actually do with it. So you as a curator get together collections to four different venues, people, et cetera. And are those collections based on some kind of a theme or is it just purely aesthetic? Like, I like this here and that matches with that over there in my mind for the following reasons, or is there just variety between those? Like when you're yeah. curating how, when how you're, yeah, when you're a curator, curate, to be a curator means to be in charge of a collection of some group of things, right? So, you know, you can curate your own playlist or whatever, which drives we, the curators, because <laughs> it just makes it sound like we don't do anything. <laughs> When, when you're in a, a print department, particularly prints, drawings, and photographs, generally the, that part of the collection is the largest part of the collection. At the Baltimore Museum of Art, there were 62,000 things in the Works on Paper collection of a total of maybe 80,000 things. So generally, the vast majority, like the Metropolitan has over a million pieces of paper in their collection. You tend to you tend to veer towards the strengths of whatever the collections that came in early give you. Um, uh, there's a, a real strength at the Baltimore Museum of Art in works on paper by Henri Matisse. So there's a real 
sort of, I mean, not that you need to buy everything that Matisse ever did, but there is sort of a, you know, the New York school in Paris and there's a, you pay attention to that era that he was painting in. They also were strong in uh, early old master things. So you might try to fill in gaps with certain specific purchases of works. Um, there's always the, the it's a crapshoot really of gifts that come in from people uh, either in town or from far away. And you hope that you, you try to know what people in town are collecting so that you can sort of predict where you might have to fill in gaps and where something might suddenly show up as a gift. So it's kind of a balancing act in that way. And um, the, one of the things that other curators that are not in Works on Paper always took issue with and, uh, and collectors and donors too, when things come into the Works on Paper collection, they go into, a, into storage, they go into a drawer because you, you don't have space in the museum to put them all up. You don't have the money to frame them all and they're light sensitive. So you don't want them in the light anyway. So there's this real kind of, why are you collecting that? Are you, are you collecting it to put on the wall or is it just gonna go in a drawer? <laughs> and I would always try and, and make the point that because there is a study room function in that department and we welcomed classes from MICA and whatever other schools were around, that there was a use for all of the, many of those things, not everything, obviously, uh, for many of those things that you might acquire in a very sort of small and limited audience kind of way, a class that would come in uh, and that you would hope to eventually get it on the wall. But, you know, the there was, you know, less than a sliver of a percent of works on paper on from the collection on the wall at any given time. So it was a very, you know, you had to, you had to, uh, you had to really, sometimes you had to really fight for your acquisitions. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> sometimes it was really clear, like, yes, let's buy that. <laughs> I think that's so interesting because it, it feels like there's a little bit of like a Pokemon vibe, right? Like you got to catch them all. Like we're going to get all the things and you, you can't see them. They will sit in our vault <laughs> where you can't break them and they will be pretty there, but we'll just tell you that they're pretty. That's all you need to know. No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the thing that I, I always say to every, everybody that will listen is that every, any museum that has a works on paper collection of any size will have a study room that's there because they want to welcome you, Michelle, in. You can call the Blanton tomorrow morning and say, I'd like to come in and see those five things. And says that you're going to exactly all your stuff <laughs> and they're going to be like, we're on it. Thanks, Anne, for sending yeah. I mean, there are some institutions that that might be a little more, you know, do you have a research project? Like, do you, you know, is it? But I, as a person who believes in access uh, to all, would say, hey, come on in. I'll pull whatever you want. And I'll talk so, to you about it. <laughs> so on your note of access for all. Yeah. In 2022, access for all usually translates into everything being online. I do have other curators in my life whom I love. And all of them have very strong opinions. Uh, about online yeah. curation and online galleries. Mm -hmm. Most of them have largely the same opinion. I'm curious to see if yours is the same. How do you feel about online galleries and curation? <laughs> um, we, we, as a curatorial team at the Baltimore Museum of Art, was were, well, let me back up. Before I was at the Baltimore Museum of Art, I was at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. Now, the, 
the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. has a lot of resources money-wise. They We photographed everything that came in as a gift or purchase as soon as it did. And so their online collection database is basically up to date all the time. In Baltimore, where they have no money for that kind of a project, it was uh, things would get photographed as they were going out for an exhibition or a loan, or I would sometimes was taking snaps with my iPhone and sending it to the database coordinator. <clears throat> and so filling out all of that data, also the cataloging wasn't really very good. So we did a lot of data scrubbing, you know, just like the, say the dimensions weren't there or the artist was wrong or, you know, whatever it was. There was a lot of that. And so we debated about putting up onto the online database information that probably wasn't correct, but just to get it out there so people knew we had the thing or waiting until everything was done. And if you waited till everything was done, it would never get done. So there was a big, you know, a big thing like this. And there were also uh, curators. I don't know. You'll have to tell me if this is true amongst your curator friends. I hope they're in my camp. There are two kinds of curators. There's the kind that want to be in their office with the door closed, researching the next exhibition or project or the next acquisition or whatever. And then there are people like me who want you to see what we have and want to interface between the objects and you to help you love things that we love to understand them better or whatever it is. So that there's like, there's, there are the people person curators and then there's the scholar and the Ivy Tower curators. I have both. I have both. I have the, yeah. and, and both of them want you to see it. It's just whether or not they want to be the one telling you about right. it. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Good distinction. <laughs> so, I, but I think that that's so true because I do think that sometimes to the layman, it feels like galleries and curators do drag and hoard, right? I'm going to take all of the pretties and I'm going to put them here in my museum and you can't see them because now they're mine in my museum. And, and that that's, you know, that, that people have that feeling, right? That there is, it's making it elite, et cetera, that in our, in our rush to preserve yeah, it's what a big is problem. beautiful mm -hmm. that we actually take it away from people. So I think that it is important to say that, no, we really want you to see it. I have never met a curator who was not like, I want everybody to see all of the things. I just also need them to be here so that the next generation of people can also see all of the things. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, oh my gosh, you've touched on a, a nerve in the museum field right now, which is this whole idea of colonization. The whole enterprise is based on collecting other, <laughs> right? And it's big philanthropic, big men who have these giant collections and they form these municipal, you know, the good dudes, we're going to have a museum for the people and the staff, uh, um, for the most part, originally, we're all volunteer wives. So there's this, the tradition that everybody has been operating under started as this um, kind of a system that's not working anymore. <laughs> Good way to put it. And so because they pay like shit, only people who can afford to do those free internships like I did when I was 20, whatever, you know, that like that was the way in. And 
only recently has there been a real push to have paid internships as that kind of pipeline thing. And only in the last 20 years has there been an effort to make it possible for people who aren't, you know, of a certain privilege to get into the business. Um, it's a it's a real problem across the board in terms of collecting artists of color or, you know, black artists, brown, whatever staff wise, trustee wise, like across the entire board, the whole thing needs to be redone, but it won't get redone because no one wants to walk away from their jobs. Well, yeah. And I think that there's so much privilege. And of course, as a first nations uh, woman, believe me, I'm familiar with the colonization (laughs) issue. And, and, and it is, it is difficult and it is tricky. And again, the British Museum is one of my favorite places in the whole wide world. I could literally just like get locked there for weeks and I would be so happy. And it is so grotesquely problematic where there are yes. entire temples <laughs> that yeah. were taken and, and, you know, and are we sorry? Yes. What do we do about it is kind of like, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, those types of moments and questions in the art community are very much a reflection of the similar kind of questions we have with other parts of society, right? Like, okay, great. We did something really, really, really fucked up a while ago. And some of those whiles ago were not that long, but we're really trying to be better today. (laughs) And now what do we do to fix it? Like, how do you make it right? Like if we take all of the stuff out of the British Museum and take it back. Like, do they, does that damage it more? Probably. Of course. That right? was their like, whole, the whole Elgin Marbles was the the pollution in Greece. You know, yeah. We're keeping it safe. And, <sighs> and, which is a problem. And it's the same, like with the whole, you know, Egyptian recovery stuff, right? Where they're like, we want all of our mommies back. Bring them back. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, there. They're clearly yours. We right. should do that. But at the same time, like, okay, but are like these are important global historical artifacts, and are they going to be able to be protected and be kept safe? And also, is it our job to tell you, police how you maintain your own heritage? And it's it is very fraught. Is that I feel like in some ways the being in the print biz gets you out of a lot of this. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> There's no yeah, like fewer so sacred funny. artifacts in the print biz <laughs> than in the other. No, article. yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, the you know, I think collecting the other into the municipal museum was a way to educate the populace about other cultures. And we can do that now online, right? I mean, do we need to have the mummy next door? Not really. Like we all can investigate that kind of society in a in a less hurtful way. Great. So yeah, I I don't know what I mean. I do have to say I have very strong opinions about the whole online gallery thing because I worry very much. So I am quite clearly a major art lover. If you hadn't already cottoned on, yeah. But I um love it, love it, love it, and some of my favorite memories of all times have to do with experiencing the physicality of the art. So at the Chicago Art Institute, there's this amazing um, uh, stairwell 
and when you go up the stairwell to the side, there's the Georgia O'Keeffe clouds. Yes. And you can see all of the prints of Georgia O'Keeffe clouds in books on the internet. And it's like this big. It's always this big because that's how big the picture is. And then when you're stood next to, what is it, like 40 feet wide or something? Like yeah, it's huge. Immense. Right. Immense. Right. Insane. And it made me think of it when you were talking about Matisse earlier, because same when I was at the Hermitage and there were, you know, when you see the dance and again, like in the books, the dance is this big, always right. this big. Right. And then you're like, you're stood next to the dance. You're like, holy crap for crap. Like these people are red humans are larger than me. Yeah. And it's overwhelming to your senses. And it's just a very, very different engagement. And I think the same is true for things like Starry Night in the other way, right? Like Starry Night gets so much press and people always are like, and then I went to MoMA and Starry Night was this big. And I was like, all of this <laughs> or, over Mona Lisa or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me let my dog out of the room. Hold on. Okay. It's between um, the difference between art, fine art that is created as art in the Western sense is, you know, very different than the Benin bronzes, you know, even though those are artful. So what am I advocating for? Museums that are Western art only objects that were intended to be art. Like it's, you know, where do you go? Where do you go? It's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's and then hard. with all of that, like there's other ways to be problematic, right? So we have the, what are the ongoing debates in everything art? Right now, I think the debate is more hotly held in, in acting and live arts is the, can you love the art if you hate the artist? Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. So the Woody Allens, the Kevin Spacey's, like Picasso. <laughs> well, exactly. But people forget, like they talk about, I will never watch a Kevin Spacey film again. He's a monster. I'm sorry. The Usual Suspects is still really fucking good. Like it's right. And people made the same call about painters. Like very few famous artists are not highly problematic in one way or another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gauguin was an asshole. Ask the family he abandoned to go paint topless chicks in Tahiti, right? And marrying but, his 13-year-old cousin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, yep. but they're really good pictures of topless chicks with mangoes. I I'm like done. Them. I am done with the, the female nude. I am. I can't stand it anymore. And no, I think we it's obviously an age differently about female nudes. Uh, oh my God, I can't stand it. Like, why? For fuck's sake, why? Just stop it. Those of us have the attracted to female um, varietal have no problem understanding why might one enjoy a female nude. Yeah. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> but it's, you know, like, I when just you... think that the female body is beautiful, like genuinely, like sexual sure. attraction aside, I think it's beautiful. So I never run out of excitement over female nudes, including. But shouldn't like, there be an equal number of male nudes? Like, no, have you seen naked men? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just keep thinking about the Gauguin's and the Picasso's and even Matisse. He's a pig. Mm. Sorry, people. No, they're all pigs. They're all pigs. And so how do you, as a curator, how do you deal with that? Because that's, there's some things that are, like, there's, again, like you said, there's a spectrum of all of this in terms of problematic nature, right? I have a, a background in Russian history, and I love Stalinist propaganda. Like, there's just something fundamentally kind of awesome about early communist propaganda in Russia like and that is squarely in your print like wheelhouse there but they were also awful humans 
yeah, who did right. horrible things to other humans. Um, and that's before you get to the Germans of the same kind of era, right? Sure. How do you handle those things and, and protecting what is art and beautiful despite content or despite context? Um, I, yeah, I think people are still not able to, to not show Picasso and Matisse and those guys, like, because they're just so codified in the Western canon. But um, for me and my own curatorial work and exhibitions, um, you know, if I have, like, the Peter Milton show that we did, he, he sometimes has salacious nudes in there. I'm like, oh, really? Are you a dirty old man? Yes, you probably are. I just keep that stuff out. And I try to move on to honor the creative, you know, like, I don't know. It's hard. It is hard. Like, I didn't think we should write Chuck Close off because he said something stupid in a critique, you know. But that's different than what other people have done. So I don't know. There's there's another, you know, gray. There's gray areas. Cat, shut up. Everything Sorry. is gray. I Everything like. is gray. There's Everything. no black and white. <laughs> um, we are out of time and over what? time because you are a delight to talk to. You. And oh, literally, thanks. if we had wine, I could just spend the whole evening. Like you, me, some wine and some goat cheese, Anne, and I'm ready any day. <laughs> I feel like we didn't dig into a couple of big nuts, but that's all right. We did, but we just ran out of time. So um, what did I not ask you that I absolutely, absolutely should have done? Oh, gosh. Um, well, yeah. So what we didn't really talk about was that I'm an independent curator now. I was at okay. the Baltimore Museum of Art for a long time. And as happens with any change of the guard, a new director, you know, shifted who we wanted in the position. So whatever. So I'm not there anymore, which is fine. Uh, I cried for two years, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> okay. But so now I, I, interestingly, um, it took the pandemic to finally get me moving out of my grief of losing a beloved job that I was planning to retire from. And I started writing because when the, you know, when the, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we all thought we were going to die. And so I started writing stuff because I was like, you know, I have stuff to say. I have things to say about the things that I collected and why I loved them and why they were important. And, you know, just trying to share that knowledge before something bad happened, which didn't obviously. Um, although, of course, many people died and I've considered myself lucky to be able to, you know, hibernate at home. Um, and then I started a podcast, which is called Plate Mark, one word, Plate Mark, which is the impression that the copper plate leaves in the paper. So I thought about it as a framework in which you could talk about all sorts of stuff. And I also uh, teamed up with some local gallery dealers here to start a new print fair. One of the things that I was responsible for at the Baltimore Museum of Art was its contemporary print fair, which ran every other year. Um, I was directing I directed it for the last three iterations of it the last one was in 2017 and the new director that let me go and everybody else showed no signs of bringing it back to fruition so I kind of waited and watched for you know four years or something and then we put the first one the first non-museum related print fair in Baltimore was uh, mounted in April this last year uh 2022 and we're going to do it again in 2023 so it was um the print fair is the most fun I had on my job, you know, we had 20 different gallerists and print publishers from all over the country uh, come and sell prints for a weekend at the museum. And now we're doing it not in the museum and as, as a commercial fair. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful 
wonderful thing. As I said before, print people are the nicest people. If you've ever been to a, a contemporary art fair like Art Miami or something, and you walk into one of the booths and no one talks to you, that doesn't happen at a print fair. Everybody's happy as shit to talk to you about whatever your questions are about technique or working with the artists or, you know, all of that stuff. Everybody is, just loves to talk and they love to you know, visit with each other. And, you know, it's just like print camp. It's so much fun. So we are, we're doing the Baltimore Fine Art Print Fair again in, in um, the end of March, 2023. So stay tuned. Okay. And we will have links to all of your podcasts and all of the ways to reach you in the show notes. Um, and people can go and check it out. I, this was such a delight, Anne. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, Michelle. You've been listening to Hey, I Want Your Job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit us at www.onhconsulting.com, where we keep all the opportunities we're working on up to date. You can also reach out to us there to be your own in-house recruitment on demand. Check us out at LinkedIn, Facebook, Insta, or TikTok for more insider information. And soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job. <laughs>